We had our graduation at Criswell College yesterday. Great. And that was fun. Fred Luter was absolutely wonderful. And our son Andrew's just finished his dissertation and Lynn and I are editing it right now. So that is a very big job. <coughs> he thought it would be a simple job. <laughs> but since uh, Lynn and I have been editing the Criswell Theological Review, the journal, We've learned how to edit in the past nine years, and he's got a lot of edits that need to be taken <laughs> He thought he was going to send that thing in this week. He's not going to get it in this week. <laughs> so anyway, we are in Matthew chapter 9, and last week we read how Jesus called to Levi, a tax collector, uh, to become one of his disciples, and in turn, Levi throws a feast in honor of Jesus and invites all of his friends. And this leads to a discussion because the Pharisees come up to Jesus' disciples and say, why does your master, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And that discussion goes on for a while. And then some disciples of John the Baptist say, why does your master feast when the Pharisees and we fast all the time, at least twice a week? And maybe three times on Sunday, I don't know. So uh, uh, that leads to a discussion. So they are sitting at a feast. That's the setting. And they've eaten the meal, and now they're in this symposium section of the feast. And this discussion is going on when there is an interruption. So now we pick up at Matthew chapter 9 and verse 18. While he spoke these things, that's Jesus. Behold, look... Uh, Matthew is drawing us uh, our attention to something. A ruler came, an uninvited guest comes to the feast, interrupts the feast, kneels before Jesus, and says, my daughter has just died. Now we know from Luke's Gospel this man's name is Jairus. And his daughter has died, or... The word for die there means she could be just at the point of death or she has expired already. It's really not determined for sure. But let's put it this way. This man's in desperate shape. Because his daughter is either on the verge of death or she's, she's died. And in desperation he turns to Jesus. And so he goes on and he says in verse 18, My daughter has died, but, notice the but there, Come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus arose from his reclining position at the feast and followed him, and so did his disciples. So an entourage leaves the feast, head towards the ruler's house, and the man who's called a ruler means he's a ruler of the synagogue, which means he's a layman, probably a wealthy layman, and today we would call that person the president of the local synagogue. You know, in synagogues they have the rabbi, but they also have a layman who runs the show. And uh, he's called a president. I grew up in a Jewish neighborhood, and I was very familiar with these kinds of people. So how in the world does this man know about Jesus? Well, maybe Jesus spoke in his synagogue. Jesus has been speaking in synagogues. Or the word is spread that there's a healer in town and the man in desperation comes to Jesus. But look at verse 20. Another interruption. 
And suddenly, unexpectedly, a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind as they were trudging towards the man's house and touched the hem of Jesus' garment, the tassels on his garment. And she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. Now, in Luke's Gospel, this story is told in great detail, and you know it. There's the, the press of the crowd. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the crowd is following Jesus along with his disciples and the ruler and moving at a snail's pace uh, toward the man's house. And suddenly this woman comes up and she grabs the hem of his garment and Jesus turns around and the procession comes to an absolute halt. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm the ruler whose daughter is dead or dying, and I'm in desperate shape, I'm saying, I'm angry right now. We don't have any time to waste. My daughter's dying, and here's this woman. She grabs his garment, and Jesus stops. And instead of saying, look, you don't have an emergency here. You've been sick for 12 years. This is obviously a chronic issue. <laughs> you can be, you know, if you go another day, you know, 12 years in one day, it's not going to hurt you. i got an emergency here. Come back and see me tomorrow. And I think that's what the ruler, if you can read between the lines, that's what the ruler's thinking. What's he doing dealing with this woman when my daughter is dying or is dead? So I, I think I'd be mad because we're dealing with an emergency situation versus a chronic situation that can wait. But we know that Jesus stops. And this, it's Jairus who's going to have to wait. <laughs> Not the woman. And he turns around and he deals with this woman, and I think this has to be very frustrating for the father. Now I want you to notice uh, some things in common between the two situations. Look in verse 18. Verse 18. The man says, if you will come and lay your hand on her, she might live. Isn't that right? No, he says she will live. Look at this absolute faith. Not that she might live but that she will live. And then look at verse 21. The woman, with the issue of blood, said to herself, if only I may touch his garment, I might be made well. Doesn't say that, does it? I shall be made well. In both cases, there is an extraordinary evidence of faith. One, faith on the father for his daughter and other, the faith of this woman. So that's one thing they have in common, this faith. Second thing is they're both unclean. The girl who's 12 years old, we know she is 12 years old, by the way, from another gospel. The girl's 12 years old, she's just reaching the age of puberty. This woman's been sick for as long as that girl's been alive. Two 12s in there. When Matthew and the other gospel writers start giving these numbers, you always know there's something a little hidden message behind it. When you think of 12 with the nation of Israel, what do you think of? 12 tribes. This is a guy, Jesus is doing something here. Yes, he's going to heal. Yes, he's going to raise the dead. But what he's really, there's a hidden message in here, is that Israel is going to be raised from the dead. He's offering them salvation. He's offering them hope as well. But one thing these two have in common is that they're both unclean. The girl is unclean because she's dead. You touch a dead person, 
That person's dead, and guess what? According to Jewish tradition, according to Leviticus, actually, not even tradition, according to the law, you touch a dead person, you also will be unclean for seven days. And this woman who has the issue of blood, she's unclean. So if Jesus touches either one of them, guess what? He's unclean. He doesn't care about that nonsense, does he? He will deal with people on the margins all the time, and he doesn't care what anyone else says. And so you have these two women who are unclean, and finally you have these two women that are absolutely powerless. They are definitely marginal characters in Jewish society, women themselves being secondary citizens, and these women are definitely powerless to do anything about their own condition. This woman who's been sick for 12 years has tried to be, get healed for a dozen years, and both of them cannot do nothing for themselves. So look what Jesus does. He stops. He deals with the woman. The man's frustrated. Uh, in verse 22, it says, Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said to the woman, I like this, lighten up. See that? You know what yours says? Something like that. Smile. <laughs> Be happy. <laughs> Cheer up. That's what he says. I like that. Be of good cheer. Cheer up. And then he says this. Daughter, your faith has made you well or whole. So he offers her this complete healing. This word is the word whole there. Well, actually, is the word for salvation. Salvation is of the whole person. It's not just your soul that gets saved. God redeems your body as well, doesn't he? And this is a picture of uh, future redemption when all of our bodies are going to be resurrected. He heals her body. She is made whole. And it says, and the woman was made well from that hour. That's Matthew's comment. He lets you know that. See, it's not written in red. Matthew wants you to know, well, what happened to her? Uh, she was healed instantly from that point on. So that's good. And it means that she didn't get sick again that particular problem. So now we're going to jump ahead, and when we jump ahead, now Jesus gets to the man's house, and when he walks in, he walks into a lake. Okay? So look at, look at this, verse 23. When Jesus came to the ruler's house, look what he said. Flute players and a noisy crowd wailing. This is a wake in the traditional Jewish sense. Every time there was a death, a Jewish family would have the neighbors and their other family members come together and they would have flute players who set the atmosphere. Even the poorest Jewish family in the world during this day, and this man was wealthy, but even the poorest family in the world, when someone died, had to hire two flute players and one professional mourner who set the atmosphere for everyone else to begin that wailing. They set the stage. They primed the pump. Uh, they let the tears fall so everyone would start crying. I remember uh, seeing an interview with Milton Berle one time, and those old, the old-timers know who Milton Berle is, the young-timers are not, but he was one of the original comedians on television. And he tells his story, in fact, I read his life story. He tells his life story that, uh, by the way, Milton Berle, used to date Amy Simple McPherson, who was the evangelist back in the 1920s. It's very interesting. This Jewish guy dating this woman, which says something about Amy. 
She was even trying to win Jewish people, right? <laughs> they did more than they, what I understand. But anyway, uh, Milton Berle, when he was starting out, he would get stand up. He'd do a one-man you know, act, a stand-up comedian. And his mother would come into the audience. Every time he performed, his mother would sit in the audience. And he would tell a joke, and she'd go, ah! And she got the whole audience laughing. She had this belly laugh. You could hear it on these old-fashioned tapes of this one woman. He said, that was my mother. And she just rhymed the pump, and everyone would start laughing. He said, I was the most famous comedian because of my mother. And in Jewish ancient times, the Jews would bring in a professional mourner who got everybody emotional with the flute players. And so that's what Jesus walks in on. He walks in on a typical first century Jewish wake. Now, look at verse 24. Reverse again, verse 24. He said to them, so let me read 23 again. When Jesus came into the ruler's house, he saw flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, mourning. He said to them, make room for the girl, make room, give me some space, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. Now, some commentators say that Jesus is just using the word sleep euphemistically. He's saying, instead of using the word dead, he said she's sleeping. That's how Paul used the word. Remember Apostle Paul said, we shall not all uh, sleep, but we shall all be changed. And when he used the word sleep, he really meant dead. And they're saying, well, Jesus is saying that she's dead. He's just using it as a word. That's ridiculous. <clears throat> Jesus is using that word literally. He's saying, what did he say? She's not what? Dead. Okay, she's not dead. <laughs> so, and he said she's asleep. And how do we know he's using it literally? Because what did the crowd do? They laughed at him. Come on, you know. I'm a professional mourner. I've seen dead people before. Oh, yeah, we've played wakes many times. You know? So uh, they ridicule him. So he's saying she's not dead. Today we'd say she's in a coma. Uh, she doesn't have any signs of life. She appears to be dead. Uh, you know, you put the mirror under her nose and it doesn't show any breath, expiration. And so they assume she's dead. He said, no, she's, she's in a coma. And they laugh at him. They scorn him. Uh, and so look what happens next. But when the crowd was put outside, I want you to ridicule Jesus in this situation. Guess what he does? throws you out. Notice that phrase, put outside. You know what the Greek word is? It's the word that's used to cast out demons. He expelled them from the house. Throws them out of the house. He probably had these disciples around these people. I can get them out of here. And so once they're put out of the house, he went in, probably to the girl's room, I think that's what we, we surmise, took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And so she is brought from the edge of death back to life. I consider this one of the great miracles of the Bible. And I'll tell you why. You say, oh, it would be a greater miracle if she were actually dead and he raised her. No, it wasn't. Wouldn't. That was a great, it would be a great miracle. Uh, he did that many times. <clears throat> raised people from dead. He raised the widow's son who was in a funeral procession from the dead. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He raises this girl from the verge of death who's in a coma. She looks like she's dead. Here's why it's a great miracle. Because he keeps her from being buried alive. 
If you want to know what a bad death is, that's a bad death. When you're alive, and they bury you alive, and you die as a result. Now, I've spent a lot of time reading about magicians, and especially a special class of magicians called mentalists. Uh, the amazing Kreskin is a mentalist. The guy who does mental magic. He can predict dates and find uh, things you know, that people hide just through mental powers. And back in the late 1800s, there was a mentalist named uh, Washington Irving Bishop that I read about not too long ago. And he was buried alive. Not as a trick. Uh, he had catalepsy. He would fall into states of unconsciousness. And his mother, he was single at the time, and his mother was so concerned that he would be found dead lying on the street uh, and presumed to be dead. And somebody would take him to the morgue and they'd do an autopsy and her son would be killed. So Bishop always carried in his pocket a note that said, if you find me unconscious, do not take me to the morgue and do an autopsy. I'm a cataleptic. And so, lo and behold, one day he was found unconscious. He had just finished his act and he was found walked out of the stage door in the back alley and he was found unconscious. And they checked for his pulse and there was no pulse. Didn't seem to be breathing. Took him to the city morgue, didn't know who he was, took him to the city morgue, and they performed an autopsy. And uh, his mother was devastated, sued the, the people and the city and everything. So that's what you have here. This is a horrible thing to be buried alive and then die as a result. So this is a great miracle in my opinion. So here's what we have. Verse 26 says, the report of this went into all the land. This uh, publicity just spread like Texas wildfire throughout the region. So now we come to another miracle. We look at verse 27. When Jesus departed from there, meaning that man's house, two blind men followed him, crying out, saying, Son of David, which is a title meaning representing the Messiah, have mercy on us. Now we know that Son of David is the title for Messiah because that's how Matthew's Gospel opens. Remember that? Jesus Christ, Son of David, Son of Abraham. That's a Messianic title. They say, Messiah! They recognize Him. Uh, not because they can uh, see, but they hear this and they say, He must be the Messiah! I'm going to show you why they think that. In a minute. Uh, have mercy on us. Have compassion on us. And when He had come into the house, the blind men came to see him. Evidently, he ignores them. He goes out of this one man's house, followed by a group, and these blind men say, have mercy on him. He doesn't even look at them. Different than the way he treated the woman with the issue of blood. He just keeps on going and goes into a house. And guess what they do? Follow him in. Now he knows they're serious. And look what happens. Once he realizes that they're they're really serious in verse 28. He said, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? Then he touched their eyes, and they said, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, and he said, According to your faith. There's the faith again. In all three cases. On the basis of your faith, 
let it be unto you. So what we have in this situation, and it goes on to say, and their eyes were open. Now what we have in this situation is Jesus does this miracle privately, out of the eyesight of the crowd. He just wants to get off, and he, they followed him in, and he performs a private miracle. Okay, And then look what he says in verse 30. He said sternly, he sternly warned them. The word is the word snorted. He snorted at them. He growled at them. He roared at them, saying, See that no one knows it! <laughs> that was a nice way of talking to this guy, these two guys they feel. He just lets them have it. He says, Make sure you don't tell anybody what's going on. That's why he did this thing privately, because Things are really getting out of hand. You have to realize what is happening with Jesus. He's just started his ministry not too long back. But throngs of people. He can't even move at times. Things are just going like, like this. When you look on television, you see riots in the streets in the Middle East. And you see those great crowds and throngs. And That's what you have here. It's just that nothing is moving. And he just needs to get away. And he does this. And he warns them, don't let anybody know about this. But, verse 31 says, when they departed, they spread the news about him in all the country. Well, that's what you do, wouldn't you? Hey, I can see. So even though he warns them not to do it, uh, they're helpless. They couldn't help but tell everybody about what had happened. So, in fact, it was obvious what had happened. You wouldn't have to tell anybody, would you? Not anybody that knew you. One minute you were blind, and guess what? Now you see. I mean, hey, what happened? Hey, let me tell you what happened. I shouldn't be telling you this, but. <laughs> so now we come to this final miracle. And that's verse 32. And he went out to that house, and behold, they brought him a man mute and demon possessed. Notice this. As soon as he heals one, there's always one there waiting. I mean, this, you talk about something that has to be absolutely exhausting. Can't turn in one direction without somebody just grabbing you. And this person is cannot speak. And this illness is a result of demon possession. Matthew lets us know that some illnesses are a result of demon possession. Not all, but some. This would be one of the illnesses that a doctor, no matter if he were a graduate of Harvard Medical School, could not handle, this problem could not be solved through medicine. You know, some problems that Jesus deals with could have been solved through medicine. No doubt about it. You know, person is sick, has a fever. Peter's mother-in-law, she had a fever, right? A doctor probably could have, you know, rubbed her down, done something, eventually get her temperature down. But when a person is sick because of demon possession, medicine does not work. And so here's a person who cannot speak because he's possessed, and Jesus is going to deal with him. And here's what it says in verse 33. And when the demon was cast out, the same Greek word used for throwing the mourners out. <laughs> when, they were, when the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke. And... Uh, 
the multitudes marveled, saying, it was never seen like this in Israel. Now, what you need to realize is that they recognize that this is something special. There are healers going around in Jesus' day. And occasionally, you know, maybe somebody's healed psychosomatically or whatever. But they realize that something like this is very unique. And as wonderful as these miracles are that Jesus is performing, he's not just performing the miracles for the miracles' sake, although that is very important. These miracles are pointing to the kingdom of God's arrival. When there'll be no demons around, <laughs> God rules the earth. And there will be no sickness, and everybody will be truly well. There will be no death. Everybody will have been raised from the dead when the kingdom comes in its absolute fullness. And these miracles are pointing to the kingdom of God. And these people realize it. They say, this has never happened in Israel's history before. This is something new. This must mean the kingdom here in some way. Now let me show you something. I want you to keep your finger here. I want you to go back to Isaiah chapter 35. Now, we will look at this verse several times during the course of our study. But this is important for you to see this. Uh, occasionally, just to remind you what's going on. So turn over to Isaiah chapter 35. And then we'll, we'll finish up our study. You'll see that these miracles point to the arrival of God's kingdom in some way. And when you get to Isaiah 35, look at verse 4. And this is where the prophet, if you look at the, the, the heading of the chapter, chapter 35, it talks about Israel's glorious future. It talks about the kingdom of God coming to Israel. And in verse 4 it says, To those of you who are fearful uh, and faint-hearted, or fearful-hearted, be strong, do not fear. You could say it this way, be of good cheer, if you want to do it. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. He will come, when God comes, there will be a judgment with recompense. He will come and he will save you. He will make you whole. Then, look at this, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, the lame shall leap like a deer, the tongue of the dumb, the mute will sing, the waters will burst forth in the wilderness, and there will be streams in the desert. So, this was a prophecy about the kingdom of God coming on the earth, and notice the very kinds of things that Jesus does are the things that happen when the kingdom arrives. And so when they see this, they say, the kingdom must be coming. This must be the king. This must be the Messiah. So Jesus is performing miracles, and no one, listen, no one has performed miracles like this ever before at their will. At their will. Yes, did Elijah perform a miracle or two? Yeah, he did. Could he just do it at his will anytime he wanted to? Jesus did it all the time. And this is a evidence that the kingdom of God is coming upon the earth. So when we go back to chapter 9, we look at verse 33, and it says, So the demon came out, the mute man spoke, the multitudes marveled, saying, Nothing like this was ever seen in Israel. Their, people were excited, they're astonished, they're saying, Wow, unbelievable, you ever seen anything like this? Never in my life, this is unbelievable. The kingdom must be coming. Then you read verse 34. But, not everybody's happy. <laughs> but the Pharisees said, Ah, oh, come on, he cast out demons 
by the ruler of demons. Now he's in league with the prince of demons, the chief of all demons, Beelzebub. He's working through the power of Beelzebub. <coughs> and so what we see is that Matthew is letting us know that the lines are being drawn right down the middle. Those that are for Jesus who recognize him as coming to proclaim the kingdom of God and setting it up, and those that are against him and opposed everything that he does. The people who are with him are the common people, the people who are in desperate need, the marginal people, the people who are against him for the most part are the Pharisees. Not all Pharisees, but what we have is a category for the most part that are against him, and they say he's in league with the devil. I think Matthew's audience needs to hear this. And so Matthew, when he chooses stories, he chooses, he doesn't tell you the whole life of Jesus. He takes bits and pieces and puts them together. And I think that his audience, years later, a generation or two later, need to know this because probably they're going through the same thing. There's some people, you know, they're, they're located up north. They're in an area where there are Jews and Gentiles together. And they're trying to worship God, and probably their Jewish leaders are saying something like, you're not following that guy Jesus, that magician guy, are you? The one who works with demons, and they don't know what to do. They're experiencing the frustration. And Matthew is saying, hey, it happened to Jesus before it happened to you. And there were attackers of Jesus. I want you to know that this is uh, evidence that the kingdom of God is coming. And probably when the church gets together, Matthew's church gets together, they're probably seeing miracles happen. There are critics, critics out there saying, ah, they're from the devil. Remember when the charismatic movement started back in 1970? Oh, that's from the devil. That's an easy way out, isn't it? Don't examine anything. Don't look at it. Don't uh, check the evidence. Just label devils. Hey, when you do that, you're in the side of the Pharisees. You're the enemies of Christ. Christ can work through anyone. And if we are living and we believe that Christ, who is exalted and reigns at the right hand of God, works through the Holy Spirit, we should be expecting to see things like this. Not at our will, we can't do it, but certainly at His will. And uh, we should be seeing this. And here they are probably experiencing some of this, and so that's why he tells these particular stories. And then we come to the summary statement, and here it is. Ends the whole section now. Then Jesus went about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every sickness, meaning every kind of sickness, and every disease, every kind of disease among people. And so that summarizes Jesus' miracle ministry. He could have given another 50 examples if he wanted to, but Matthew says, here's the summary. Hey, it didn't matter what they brought to him, what the situation was, he took care of. Now, just let me finish today with just a word. I want you to notice that sometimes faith produces miracles. We laugh at people called faith healers, but guess what? It's not them healing anybody. Sometimes faith produces miracles. You can talk to Dr. Kane over here, and he'll tell you about how faith can produce a miracle. People get healed through faith. There are scientific words for it. You've heard of the placebo effect. You've heard of a lot of other things. But sometimes faith produces miracles. Sometimes miracles produce faith. When I see the miracles, I say, well, if it happened to them, it happened to me. 
But sometimes miracles, in a sense, there's miracles, some miracles draw people toward the kingdom of God. You saw that here, didn't you? You draw them toward the kingdom. Other times miracles draw them away from the kingdom of God, like the Pharisees. See, miracles can do one of two things. It can draw you into the kingdom of God and produce faith. Or it can turn you against the kingdom of God and just label it demonic. And so we see that that line is being drawn there. And so Matthew wants us to know, hey, Jesus performs a miracle in verse 33. The Pharisees say, demons, in verse 34. And then Matthew sums up, hey, no matter what they said, guess what Jesus continued to do? He went about all the cities. This wasn't a one notice verse there. All the cities. Even the little hamlets and villages. He went to every little synagogue. He teach, taught the kingdom of God. He healed every sickness and every disease among the people. And the naysayers and his enemies couldn't stop him. So next time we'll pick up at verse 36 where Jesus begins to call and bring together the apostles who now he will send out and they will do that kind of ministry uh, in like fashion. So that's what we'll pick up next time. Lord, we thank you that we were able to come together as a class today to be with friends, to be encouraged, that no matter what our circumstance is in life, whether we're on the verge of death, whether we have a chronic illness, we can look to you and trust you. And we could put our lives in no better hands than in your hands and say that I will be done. Uh, help us, Lord, to be on the positive side. Help us not to be negative like the Pharisees. Help us to be of good cheer. Help us to lighten up. Help us to see the possibilities and the potential that we have when we're connected and we're related to you and related to others in the body of Christ that love us and are concerned for us and are pulling for us. Lord, we want to be a positive influence. Thank you, Lord, that we now are in the kingdom of God and we are being made whole day by day. That we have this salvation. And one day it will totally be complete when there's no more sickness, no more death. And we will be under your reign forever in this perfect land called the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.